We are in Second Thessalonians, and we're going to start chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. There's only three chapters, so we are starting the halfway point, or at least the chapter that's halfway through. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read just the first four verses. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So I said when we began our study of 1 Thessalonians, every chapter in both letters has something to say about the return of Christ except the last chapter of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, though this is not the only theme in these books, it is a major theme. And the same is true here with chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. It is also true that this book is used by many to support what I would call some pretty interesting views of the end times and the return of Christ. I hope not to get into all of that because interesting isn't necessarily accurate or right, but I suppose it is somewhat entertaining. Today I want to look at these first four verses and we won't look in depth at the last couple. We'll try to pick that up in a following teaching. But I'd like to look at these verses in light of life today, how we are experiencing church life in our world today. So with that, let's pray. Father, you have provided these words for us down through the ages. You have preserved them. Speak through them to us today. I do pray in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 1 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we learn that at least someone or maybe some group within the church was teaching uh, that the return of Christ had already taken place. And this teaching or claim was stirring up concern among the believers that they'd missed out on a promised and momentous part of their salvation. If Christ had returned, and they're still here, something went wrong. But to Paul, as we shall see, this teaching, this claim, was not just misleading, it was deceptive. That is, from Paul's perspective, it was intentionally misleading. And so Paul exhorts the believers to hold fast to the truth 
that they had been taught when he, Silvanus, and Timothy were with them. In other words, they were not to start questioning or abandoning the truth of God's word just because someone claimed to have a newer truth or a more up-to-date understanding. And I say God's word because Paul's letters became the scriptures. They became to us God's words. Paul then clarifies that Christ's return couldn't have happened, nor was it imminent, because two major events must precede it. First, an apostasy, or a falling away from the faith, an apostasy among believers. And secondly, a public display of the actions and activities of the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, as the Bible calls him in other places. So let me go back and just read verses 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, remember, we're going to meet him in the air, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Take that statement, it's not the easiest to understand. But if you think about the opposite, the opposite of that, the opposite of being quickly shaken from your composure is to remain calm of mind and emotion. Both. And in this context, it is to base your calmness on what you already know to be true in spite of people claiming to have new information that they say alters or makes irrelevant the truth that you already know. So think how easy it is for us to get agitated mentally and emotionally over information that we're hearing. And then imagine that you find out later on that the information was inaccurate, wasn't true. And here you are, all upset, all in an emotional state over nothing. Has that ever happened to you? Paul wrote previously to the church in Thessalonica, and I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He wrote to them, information about the coming of Christ. And if they were clinging to that information, then they wouldn't have caught into these new claims or the new teaching. And here's what Paul wrote, chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All right, even if Paul's description is figurative or metaphorical, it still implies a noisy return of Christ that would be hard to miss. And imagine a shout, the voice of the archangel, a trumpet. It's hard to miss the trumpet. Do you know that uh, many charges are made in the military? Not anymore, but they were with a trumpet. Why? 
Because the sound of a trumpet just carries. It's heard by all the troops. And the point is, is that if you understand this statement, and someone comes along and says, Christ's return, and you're unaware of it, then either this statement is wrong or they're wrong. And so the Thessalonian believers' composure was being shaken. Why? Because they were questioning the truth they knew in light of this new information. So they knew what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians in that first letter, but the new information was shaking them up. For me, it's interesting to note that the problem Paul is addressing here in verses 1 and 2 is similar to a problem Christians face today, we ourselves. We hear so-called biblical truth. And the reality is, it adds to God's word, or it alters the meaning of God's word, or it endeavors to show God's word to be wrong. And what do we do with that? An older example of this is what has been called the healthy, wealthy, wise gospel. It still is around, but it definitely takes the word of God and twists it and adds to it and ignores parts of it to create a theology and a following that holds to a particular view that is, at least in my opinion, not biblical. A more current example is the altering of scripture to show that it supports the LGBTQ lifestyle. A theological example is the New Grace Movement. And an example that relates to the return of Christ would be Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And he put a lot of effort into that book. He brought together a lot of scriptures, but he was wrong. The reality is we are not immune to this problem. And it's important for us to know God's word well enough to be able to evaluate the truth or the significance of information that someone in the church is claiming it's from God or has been discerned through the leading of the Holy Spirit or has been gleaned from some portion of scripture to which they've given a new, more modern interpretation. I don't know how aware you are of these kinds of things, but it is it has been happening all the way back in Paul's time, and it is still happening. And it is up to us to be aware enough of what God's word says that we are not taken in or deceived by new things that are brought into the church. It is possible that you don't know God's word well enough, and that's not a criticism. New believers wouldn't know God's word well enough. If you are busy doing other things that are vital and important to life, you may not have the time to study God's word. You may not have, and I mean this respectively, the kind of mind that can study and research and, and grasp the deeper meanings of God's word so that you can evaluate these things for yourself. And if that's the case, then we have an option. And the option is to attach ourselves to someone who does 
know the word of God well enough that we can tell them what we are hearing or what we're reading and get their opinion. We aren't left defenseless. And I want to point out, I want to reinforce that we aren't left defenseless because in another letter, Paul presents a solution to this very problem that requires the Christian community to work together. So if you're in that situation where you're not able to discern, we still have the body of Christ. And if we work together, we can protect each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14, starts out with this. And God gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And he gave these to the church. And they have a specific task for the equipping of the saints. In other words, giving them the education and the tools that they need for the work of service. By the way, it's not these leaders that are to do the work of service. It's those they lead. Just wanted to throw that out there. But my point is, is that God gave these kinds of leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of service so that the body of Christ is built up And built up means until we all attain to the unity of the faith. In other words, we understand together as a group what the truth is. And the knowledge of the Son of God, we understand who Jesus Christ is and what his purpose is and what he's doing even now, today. To a mature man, we grow up to maturity. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now that's a high, tall order. But nonetheless, that's the goal. That's the purpose. And if we are all involved in this purpose, then verse 14 becomes true. As a result, we will no longer be children tossed in there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. People who come in and want to present something new that doesn't agree with the word of God, but they present it as if it's from God or given to them through the Holy Spirit or understood through a new modern interpretation of Scripture. We are to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So that's the community solution. Moving on to the second half of verse 2, Paul identifies the source of the misinformation taking place in Thessalonica. He says, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. As civilized, educated, and scientifically minded Americans, My guess is, and I think I'm accurate with this guess, most of us know very little, if anything, about the spirit world and its activities. And that's sad. Because God's word speaks about this mostly unseen world in a number of places and ways. And I'm going to just give you a few examples The reality of this world is seen in the fact that God forbid interaction with evil spirits. He forbid it. He went out of his way to make a statement about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 11, 
Here's what God says. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire. Remember what I read you about Manasseh? Makes his son or his daughter pass through fire. One who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft. Or one who interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or one who casts a spell. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. I mean he didn't just say. Don't get involved in the evil spirit world. He made a pretty clear statement about the variety of ways you can get involved. King Saul, the first king of Israel, knew the spirit world was real. And we know this because he asked a medium to conjure up Samuel to tell him what to do when the Philistines were attacking Israel. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 28. By the way, God would not answer Saul's request through his prophets. And so Saul had no information, and he wanted information. And he knew he could get it from Samuel, but he had to get it through a medium. He believed in the spirit world. We read in the Gospels that Jesus cast demons out of people. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but most of the time, what Jesus was dealing was healing mental illness. And John warned Christians in a in a, uh, a, a way that says, look, watch out for this. Be wary of this. Be wary of messages from spirits or prophets who claim to speak, speak through the leading of the spirit, because not all spirits are from God. And I just want to read you the first three mm-hmm. verses of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit that is not from God of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So the point is, is that we need to be aware that evil spirits are active in our world, and part of that activity is to mislead Christians, and in so doing, create confusion and division within the church. And so we need to become knowledgeable enough in God's word, wise enough with God's wisdom, and careful enough to discern truth from falsehood. We need to be aware and on our toes. And we need to be aware of this in spite of who is saying it. So as not to be led astray. I think one of the great dilemmas of the church is that somebody writes something or somebody teaches something and it catches hold, so to speak, and it becomes so popular that Christians, without really considering what they're hearing or reading, buy the book, listen to the messages, and they just start absorbing this as if 
it's right from God, and they have no thought of, does this really agree with the word of God? Is this really how God would have us live, or is he speaking to us, or is this a different kind of message? If it's popular, my encouragement to you is be wary of it. That should be one clear clue. If it is taking the Christian world by storm, so to speak, then really give it careful consideration. From deceptive messages that come from spirits, Paul moves on to warn against unquestioningly accepting new messages or books that the presenter claims is from Paul. That was the way he said it. But in our case today, be wary. Don't unquestioningly accept any message or book where the presenter claims it's from God or the Holy Spirit, and especially if it's a new interpretation of God's word. If I have to sell you something I am teaching, you need to, this shows my age, I know because we don't use these anymore, but you need to buy my tapes, you need to get my book, you need to send in your money, of course, so that I can keep producing this stuff. I mean, that should be a clue that something is at least slightly amiss, at least questionable. And sadly, though, you yourselves may not be so familiar with this. It's not uncommon for Christian leaders or teachers or pastors and writers to claim to have a word from God or a prophetic word for the church or a new understanding of some portion of God's word. I am not lifting up the Catholic Church as the end-all and be-all, but one of the things the Catholic Church has done down through the centuries, not well. Mind you, they've broken their own rule, but the rule has been from their beginning that if you could not trace your teaching back to a disciple or a disciple of a disciple, then the church would not accept it. It had to be something that was an established truth from the very beginning. The word of God, the book, I know it's only a book, but it is the word of God. And if it doesn't agree with that, we should be wary. We should be cautious. So regardless of the claim, regardless of who's making the claim, we need to evaluate what is said against what we already know to be true in God's word. In my opinion, and this is what I hold to myself, the Bible is our anchor for truth. The teachings of Christ are the foundation of that truth. The epistles show us the application of truth to church life and our personal lives. Once, once we raise our anchor, we are adrift. And where we go will no longer be determined by God and his word, but by worldly winds, cultural waves, and the popular currents of the day. And that is where, what will take us. 
Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for the return of Christ will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, who is the son of destruction. Let no one in any way deceive you. You know, that's a pretty strongly worded exhortation. I don't know that you could say it any stronger than that. The word let is the same as the word allow. And in this this case, it means do not give permission or give freedom or lower your defenses so as to let the deceiver in, the one who is being deceptive. Now, without questions, Christians are naive, some. Some are untaught. Some are more easily misled. That's the reality of humanity. Yet, even though that's true, if we take this statement as truth and sincerely try to apply it, let no one in any way deceive you. Even though there may be some who are naive or untaught or more easily misled, they are expected to protect themselves from being misled. How? It goes back to what I already said, by being part of, meeting with the group of believers who are able to recognize bad teaching, and especially the bad teaching that circulates at the moment within the church. If we take Paul's exhortation seriously, and we ought, it means being deceived is not a case of ignorance, but of carelessness. Carelessness caused by not paying attention, or not taking the time to think about and evaluate what we're hearing or reading, or not finding someone or a group who knows the truth and will show us the truth. I have been part of church life since I was born. My parents took me to church. By the time I was less than a year old, my father was a pastor of Southfield Community Church. I grew up in church. I've heard many sermons, many Sunday school lessons, many Bible studies. I've been to youth group every Thursday and Friday night. Not both nights, but... Friday night for the younger kids, Thursday night for the older kids. I even went to prayer meeting when I didn't have enough homework to be able to stay home. So I've heard a lot. And I have been part of watching my fellow believers listen to something and think it was the greatest thing they've ever heard. And yet it disagreed completely with what they'd been taught for years. They had no discernment, no way of discerning that what they had just listened to went totally against what they'd been taught for years. Now, in this case, it was just a theological difference. So it wasn't life or death. It was Calvinism versus Arminianism. And they were taught free will. And this particular speaker was dynamic. He was emotional. He was moving. But he was totally Calvinistic, and they couldn't tell the difference. They just said, boy, did you hear that? That was phenomenal. That was great. 
Do you listen, really? I mean, do you really listen? Do you listen to me? Do you question what I say? Do you wonder, is this really true? Is this in the word of God? I actually enjoy listening to people teach because it, I know this is probably the wrong reason, but it gives me an opportunity to think through what they're saying and see if it's really true. You might be thinking that guarding against being deceived is easy, but it's not. So what I'm promoting is not an easy thing to do. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes time. And I would remind you that the devil is involved in the deception business. And he's not only crafty, but he has plenty of co-workers and human workers willing to join his efforts. One of the clear places where this kind of deception takes place is in those churches where the leadership sees the church as an opportunity to build their own kingdom or enrich their own bank accounts or be seen as someone important. This is a a hotbed for deception because you have to use deception to accomplish your goal. I'll end with this because it's running out of time, but this kind of a problem to me is so serious that we ought to be aware that even the scriptures warn us to be on guard against those in the church who would seek to deceive us for their own advantage. And I will end with these three scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the word of God says. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. All right, so let me just stop there for a minute. In the American church, We have seen church discipline for immorality. Have you ever seen it for covetousness? I haven't. But what does it say here? Maybe Paul missed the point. Maybe he wasn't right on, had a bad day, pen slipped. But he does say, nonetheless, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, he worships what he can get possession of, be it money or possessions. What he covets is his God. That's why he's an idolater. Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And notice the next words in verse 6. Let no one deceive you about this with empty words. The reality is, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be taken in by what any church leader, teacher, preacher, book says. This is what the word of God says. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive 
through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Today there is a growing movement within the church to defend homosexuality and its various forms and the things that go along with it and defend it from the word of God so that it becomes, it, it's, the effort is to make it an acceptable behavior according to the word of God. Now I think Christians have done themselves great harm in how we have treated the homosexual community. We are wrong. They should be loved just as much as anybody else. But we should also be honest with them. And we should be honest with ourselves. If anybody can be welcomed in this group, feed them, shelter them, care for them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, right? It should be within the church these things happen. But it should also be in the church that the truth is proclaimed very clearly and very accurately. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Wow, keep your eye on them. Watch out for them, huh? And hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, that is, the naive, the gullible, and the careless. Many things are taught, many things are said, many things are written. But let us be wise. Let us be discerning. Let us be aware of what God's word really says. Cling to that. Don't be moved off of that in spite of the new things that are said. So that like these Thessalonian believers, you're not shaken. You're not emotionally upset. You're not questioning what you ought not to be questioning, but rather you are anchored and holding firm to the truth of God's word.